0: Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark R. LePage and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 350, Building a Successful Career Beyond the Architecture Practice, with Gerald Olesker. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more. And Monograph, the time tracking and project management tool built for architects by architects. Gerald Olesker, welcome to Entre Architect Podcast.
1: Thank you, Mark, for having me. It's actually uh, a great honor. I love Entree, Entrepreneurial Architects. What a good, good title.
0: Yeah, this is going to be an exciting conversation. Uh, Gerald is a... Uh, a, a good friend of Entree Architect, he's involved in the Facebook groups and he's always uh, an interesting commenter there. He's always out to to help somebody, and so uh, and he has a really interesting story. So I wanted to bring him on the podcast here and uh, and share it a little bit. So, but let me let me introduce you, and then we'll get into your origin story. Um, Gerald Olesker is an architectural industrial designer, creative entrepreneur, author, and founder. And he's the driving force behind ADG Architectural Detail Group, ADG Eco Lighting Products, ADG Lighting, and 2020 Publishing. So we're talking to an entrepreneur here today. Yes. He and his handcrafted designs have been featured in premier shelter and lifestyle publications, including the LA Times, the Architectural Digest, Rob Report, Interior Design Magazine, Lux Magazine, uh, California Homes. He's been published. It goes on. Yep. And so he is, uh, he, he, fascinating what he does. I can't wait for you to hear his story. Uh, so, uh, Gerald, why don't we, why don't we dive into that? Why don't you share your origin story? What inspired you to pursue architecture and what, uh, uh, what was the, the inspiration to move beyond architecture and do what you do today?
1: The pursue architecture. I have not been asked that question in a lot of years. I thought I was going to be a medical examiner and I was going to be like the next Quincy. <laughs> is that really,
0: really what I, you want tru- to do? Truly,
1: truly. Um, Interesting. However, my daughter is uh pre-med and sports medicine. So, you know, it's a, at least someone can do this. You're getting there. <laughs> uh, 12th grade. I took a drafting class and I'm like, wow, forget this like medicine thing. And I was really good at biology, but I'm like, this, this drafting thing, this is really cool. I came home and I told my parents, I'm going to go to ITT Technical Institute and I'm going to draft and I'm going to be an architect. And they said, that's not what an architect does though. And that little like Scooby-Doo, They huh? said, no, you need to discover what an architect does. That's what a drafts person does. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you'd like to do. We want you to first go, meet an architect, talk to architects, then make a decision. And if you don't want to be in medicine, go ahead and be an architect. Do whatever you want to do. Somewhere in there, my skill set in terms of creativity was there because I had painted formal oils and landscapes at nine years old. So I, I didn't know where I was going. I just knew that my parents said, you know, give us a call, and so I called the AIA in Washington. Got all that great literature and threefold leaflets, and then I decided I—I I guess I got to call an architect. They said I had to, so I looked in the phone book, not on Google, because that didn't. What's, exist it, what's a phone much. book? Right, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the same thing that you throw out along with your Thomas uh, guides in the Blue Book. Um, so I called up this firm in LA. Like I just looked in the phone book and wow, they do construction, engineering, and big stuff. I didn't know what SOM was and uh, called them up and they put me in touch with someone there. And uh, I spoke with them and uh, Scott Johnson became this instant mentor. And from there, I started looking at schools and said, okay, I guess I'm going to, Cal Poly, because I got in, and it's the number four in the country. Great. Doop, done. And, uh, you know, started to uh, journey down that road.
0: So that was senior senior year, you discovered?
1: Senior year of high school, I yep. discovered that there was something else out there. Yeah. Got into one of the best programs around, and um, instantly had this eye-opening education that architects really do shape our environment now being the uh person i am i uh was not the person you wanted on the other side of the crit jury during crit class (laughs) because i would ask these other questions i would rabble rouse and i would equally get in trouble Because I would put light fixtures on my buildings, not knowing why. I mean, my dad had manufacturing companies and electronic companies. And, you know, he he, uh, was an entrepreneur and creator, inventor, craftsman. So it's it's in the blood. Didn't know that, but yes. Yeah. Learned to strip a car at 16, too. So, you know, I, I I learned how to work with my hands. But I didn't know that, again, the melding between working and creating and being an architect would be as empowering as 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 it is today and had launched a career that I had no clue what that career was. So the look back, we get to tell this great story. looking future forward when I was this you know young 18 20 you know 21, 22 year old, I had no friggin clue. So, I always knew I should ask questions and got in trouble in school a lot. And the nature of that, and I'll give you this quick jump in why I think the way I responded to architecture in school at Cal Poly and the way I practice today are kind of entrenched in what our business modeling is and how we approach dealing with our clients as well, and the influence I I had. So one, I I never wanted to uh, work for an architect while I was in school, because I said, well, I won't know how to build anything. So I was that student doing internships, uh, wearing tool bags, working for construction firms, working for cities, working for uh, landscape architects, and and, uh, a whole slew, construction engineering, building the USC hospital, blah, blah, blah. But in class itself, uh, it was very intriguing. I had uh, an architectural critic, and I always did very well with critics and historians, never with practicing architects. Practicing architects said, emulate what I do. Critics and historians pushed the limits and made you think. So Aaron Betsky, who... Uh, is the current and I think outgoing director of Taliesin at the moment, and he was at the um, Cincinnati uh, Museum for years as their director. Aaron had this one course, and we had to give a fifteen-minute presentation on you know some architectural theory and history. I drew the tag about deconstruction, and uh, you know Frank Gehry was kind of big at the time, and his sister Doreen Nelson was even one of my professors, so there was a lot of influence going on there. And I, I, I changed it up a little, and I'm not gonna show slides of every building that I could see, and I was not going to uh, go down that route and write this 14-page intense paper. I'm like, I'm gonna get to the roots. What is deconstruction? What is deconstructivism? And looking at it from a literary standpoint, looking at it from an architectural and an art standpoint, I said, wait, I get this. I think I do. So I happened to have a photograph that I took when I was in Virginia of a beautiful old church reflecting in a brand new glass skinned building. So you get this image, this warped image. So I used that slide and that was a real slide, 35 millimeter, not a PowerPoint slide. Right. <laughs> and, and, um, I used that slide and I had made my own screen in front of the lecture room that was about a 36 inch uh, screen. That was big, right? And uh, laminated with some 3M film and hung it in front of the, the class. And I turned on the projector and I said, This lecture is about deconstructivism. This is not deconstructivism, though. This is an image of an image of an image projected onto a surface. And I had a Oh, we'll call it golf ball size, maybe a little bigger, Mexican river rock in my hand. And I took that and I threw it over everyone's head in the lecture hall, hit the uh, screen bullseye, fractured it and said, this is a fractured element now. Turned the lights on and I just shut up. And that's hard for me to do. I provoked a 45 minute discussion and everyone, that's not deconstruction, that's destruction, and this is not architecture, and and this incredible conversation ensued. And uh, at the end, I turned in my 14-page paper. Well, he didn't say that we actually had to type the paper, <laughs> so I turned in 14 blank pages
0: that probably Bam. went over very well with the professor
1: and he did being an architectural critic and he uh took the uh 14 pages held it up in front of the class tore it in half and says Well, wesker gets the a <laughs> I, I
0: i knew guys like you <laughs> yeah i was the i was the asshole <laughs>
1: But I, w- I wouldn't suck up to the other professors. I-, I wanted this to be about the time where I could explore and experiment, learn to fail, learn to succeed. And historians and critics gave you that chance. Aaron also gave me my first writing gig with Ed Moses in uh, Design Journal LA when I graduated because I thought I'd take that as-, as part of my path. And so we had this unique opportunity in school to explore. And I I won't go into all of those stories. There's too many, but very similar. And when I graduated, I happened to be working for a very well noted landscape architecture firm and design firm. And that was Galper Baldwin. And Mark, anytime you can redirect me if you need to and all of this, but I think this is pertinent to the audience. And I graduated, I have this great gig, you know, in in an office on the walkway, on the boardwalk in Venice Beach. What 23-year-old doesn't want
0: that? It's a dream job. It's a dream job.
1: I kept my bike there. I'd ride up the coast and back down, you know, after work. I mean, I'm living the life. And what I recognized, all the great people that worked for Sid and Cleo really were great. And that's part of what made that firm great. And I would be, again, that rabble rouser and I would say to Cleo, hey Cleo, I don't get it. How does an interior designer do architecture? What do you know? She usually yelled at everyone, but me, I don't know why, she never did. And She took my hand and she said, oh honey, space space is defined by what you define that space so see that hedge that's space see that bench i placed out there that's space you see how the brick surface from the outside comes all the way in into the home and through that's not only space but what we're doing is we're holding the heat in so that we can reheat the the inside based on how this is part of the exterior and the architecture, right? Like, oh, damn, did I just get schooled? But that was such a early memory and so important to how we developed what today we do, which we say at ADG, we work with a project on the lighting side, curbside to poolside. In other words, everything that we do is influenced by the parameters of the boundaries of the project and what goes beyond that and how it influences it and what from beyond that comes in. But what Clio told me was so important. Well, the little light bulb started going off and I realized I didn't want to sit at the boards drawing for $8 an hour. Now, that's a, a really kind of good thing, right? I get a an opportunity to work for a good firm and I can earn my, um, earn, 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 my stripes. But at the same time, what was that going to teach me about architecture? So I went to Sid and, uh, I said, Hey, I want to learn the business. Don't pay me, put me out there, teach me everything, you know, and give me a ten percent cut of whatever I bring in now in the early nineties late eighties they were they were doing million dollar jobs, so I mean here I've got this big like woo i'm gonna i'm gonna make it and while I did okay, Sid taught me the business side, and you know I'd sit in the car with him while he was being interviewed by people from home magazine to architectural digest and whatever. And he would talk about all these great spots in around LA and why they were great and what made them great and how it interacted. But then one day he said, Gerald, look, here's, here's the key to business. Always return a phone call. And my father and father-in-law have told me that too, no matter how painful it is. And the second thing he said, When the tree falls over, just replace it. Then worry about the money. So in other words, make your client happy. I took that with me. And as I was working with Sid and Cleo and interacting with the Society of Architectural Historians and LA Conservancy people and other people bringing bringing a unique perspective back to their firm and introducing people, I needed to learn more and I wanted to learn from every architect and every designer in town that I could. So how was I going to meet them? You know, they, they already were interacting with a firm like, you know, Galper Balden, or they didn't have a need to because they were doing it themselves. So I had to figure out a way to meet more architects and more designers. And I decided that, uh, you know, Lighting might be a good way of doing this. I don't want to sell light fixtures. I got to design them. This is what my parents paid for this education for me, to design and build and create and craft. And that's what my father had taught me. And, you know, my mother had said, you know, you can do anything you do. We'll give you the tools. And that's all we're going to give you. Not giving you money. We're not giving you anything else. We're going to give you the tools
0: to succeed. What what inspired you to focus on lighting? No freaking clue. Really? No. Nope. Now,
1: my dad. One of the companies he did have when I was little, they did manufacture lighting.
0: So you you were brought when up they, in that world. That was one of his
1: companies, and and while I I had that as a precursor, I don't know why I went down that path. I mean, I could have done furniture and furnishings and other elements because Galper Baldwin. They also invented the what. The lounge portion of the jacuzzi. So what we think, like, oh, we're just sitting in a jacuzzi. That didn't exist. They're the ones who invented that. They did the Terra chair, which I love Terra chair. So and that was a licensing deal with Brown Jordan. They did hardware and and all of these other influences that GB had. I could have gone down that route.
0: Right, but, but you when saw, I was going you saw the, around, you saw the model at GB that that sort of. Right, design it, create it, turn it into a product, and sell it.
1: Exactly, and and you know, Sid and Cleo uh, knew that lighting was an important part of these projects. They just did, and Cleo would design light fixtures as well. Um, so, I would go around as I was, you know, driving around town, Beverly Hills, and you know, Bel Air, Malibu, whatever, going job sites from where I had to go with Sid. I would start to talk to people in the trailers. Hey, man, you need like some extra help. but I knew they couldn't sell the landscape services or the design services or, you know, hey, you need a pavilion in your yard because you know, these projects were underway already. So I had my sketchbook and my pen in hand. And I would say, hey, I've got a question. Do you need lighting? It just kind of, you know, came out. And so they would say, yeah, yeah. But at that point, you would buy lighting. You would just go to Brown, Jordan or somewhere, and you'd buy things. And I wanted to design. So I said, can I design? they like, oh, well, what do you mean? Can I design some lights? I said, sure. Now, the same exact approach that I took with that, deconstructivism lecture is what I would take with this lighting right now I have to I have to prove myself I'm young and I want this, this great architect whoever that may be and I'll tell you who some of them were you know uh, in a in a moment but I said I got to figure this out so I had this home in La Cunada this great opportunity to kind of at first like the guy kind of bit off like yeah I'll, I'll give you that chance just design a couple pieces. So it was a very heavy, goopy, French Baroque estate as it would fit into the hills in La Cunada. And back then, you know, a million dollars got you two acres, a 10,000 square foot house. And, uh, you know, it was quite the project. And so I went home to my studio and I opened up my Sir Bannister Fletcher. For some reason, I like big, thick books, phone books, you know, Thomas, blue books. I open up Sir Bannister, Fletcher, and I look up Baroque, and I start looking through and reading what happened during the Baroque period, why, why and what did they do, and how things were made, and, you know, you're reading about this, and then I see the Church of, uh, saint gervais and the one Saint Sulpice. I'm like, oh, I remember like when I was in Paris, like I remember those. This is so cool. And I start reading about those, and and the influence of those particular uh churches were very similar in the architectural spirit of this home. So then I said, okay, well, like this dome detail and this element and this element, this is how they would have made it. And Botticelli would have been doing a painting. So I've got like this voluptuous light fixture going on. But looking at all of the elements and how those fit together is how I approach the design. No different than you would approach architecture. Came in, showed the owner, goes, wow, that's really good. You could just do the entire property, side to pool side.
0: So the fixtures that you designed weren't just light fixtures, right? They just, I mean, you said they, you, you, that typically they would pick them out of a catalog, right? They, right? There would be a catalog and they would pick them, they would spec them, they go in the spec book and the contractor would buy them and the electrician would install them. And As the people lights. still do
1: today. And exactly. <laughs>
0: and, that's, and that's what typically <laughs> happens, right? And that's, that's typically how lighting works. Uh, that's not what you do. And that's no. not what you've ever done. And so you've learned from the people that you worked with, with, uh, uh, Sid and Clio. And, um, to take that idea of lighting and take the skills that you have for selling and, um, sell the concept of creating light fixtures that are integrated with the work of, of the designer. Right. And that's exactly. sort of the, the work that you do.
1: Exactly. And as, as we look at all of the, uh,
0: You know, as we
1: look at all of those um, elements, I was on a quest to learn. Why does this architect do it this way? Why does this one do it that way? How do we work this in? And along that journey, I met guys like, you know, Mark Appleton, um, Richard Landry, I mean, I've penned, I think, 46 projects for him and 30-some-odd for Appleton in a a very close proximity of years as I I was building my career. Guathme Siegel. Like, I remember working on a project, I can't say whose, because famous people don't like that, apparently. But, uh, you know, it was a project, and Guathme Siegel came out. I'm like, wow, I read about you guys in my, you know, and I I couldn't, like, get overly excited. I had to (laughs) maintain some level of professionalism. But they were asking me, like, well, how would you do this? Like, this is what we think. And because of that early education from my my father about working with your hands and building things and creating and crafting, I knew there also has to be a method in terms of how you make something. You know, wearing tool bags and framing and listening to the, you know, frame or go, this effing architect doesn't know how to put these pieces together. I don't care what this detail is. And, you know, when you used to sticky paste details on the page and, you know, everyone's saying, this is not how you do it. This is how you do it. Taking all of those experiences,
0: I understood that that's how I needed to approach lighting. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entre Architect. RCAT and Monograph. RCAT.com has been assisting architecture professionals in their search for the best products for their projects for nearly 30 years. Starting as a printed desktop reference with listings in manufacturers catalogs, RCAT has evolved into the number one most used website for finding building product information. Today, RCAT is an invaluable tool for AEC professionals offering a powerful product search engine that's backed up by up-to-date CAD, BIM, and specifications. And just as it was in 1991, today, RCAT offers all of this at no cost to their users and without requiring any registration, it's free. Visit entrearchitect.com slash RCAT today and see why architecture professionals have leveraged the power of RCAT for three decades, entrearchitect.com slash ARCAT. That's entrearchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T. Spreadsheets, spreadsheets. Are you tired of using spreadsheets to keep track of your project plans, your budgets, your staff, your time? Our friends at Monograph know what that's like because they're architects too. They know all about that spreadsheet mess that you're dealing with. So they did something about it. Monograph is a time tracking and project management tool built for architects by architects to respond to the challenges that small and medium-sized firms face on their quest to a profitable business. With Monograph's integrated suite of tools, you'll stay on track and on budget without the overhead of wrangling spreadsheets every day. Improve your firm's operations today. Try Monograph, try it for free at entrearchitect.com slash monograph. Ditch the spreadsheets. Visit entrearchitect.com slash monograph and try monograph right now for free. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entre Architect community. Well, I was gonna ask you, cause you, you just named a whole bunch of people that are pretty influential in, in the world of architecture how did a young lighting designer who's doing lighting different than most uh, lighting designers and, and different than most architects, how did you connect with those people and, and get them to allow you to do what you do? Cause a lot of ah. architects, a lot of architects, they design their own fixtures, right? If that, if they're going to have a fixture that if is they're, going to. Fixture, they're going to design it themselves, how do you come in and, and provide that for them? How do they even know you exist?
1: I was very energetic and I was very prolific. So how did I do it? By the time I was 34, I had already done 700 projects all over the world. I had a lot of energy. But how did you now, do that?
0: I mean, how did you... I'm really white now, but... How did you do um, that? Door
1: to door, literally job site to job site, seeking out the ones that I wanted to do and work with. The difference between myself and you know today, looking looking back historically and even today, as our firm deals with a lot of really great architects and designers from a project level, there's still issues in terms of trying to explain who we are and what we do. I have a very robust portfolio, as you've seen on our website at ADG, and we have been blessed with working with the best people in the world. But there's still a, a an issue. And I think, you know, Architecture 101, we're taught to be elitist, snobbish, and forget that without the trades, all you have is a friggin' piece of paper with lines on it. Now, you've seen me say this and you know, Entree Architects and Architects and Allies and some of the other groups, uh, you know, these chat groups that I'm on. And, and it really ruffles the feathers of so many people. And they get very upset. say, well, no, you know, as an architect, as a leader, as a designer, you know, we're here to guide the process and help. And that, that's very true. But as a doctor, you just don't start cutting and if you're a generalist, you're not working on eyes and brains or, you know, as my kid wants to do sports medicine, you, 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 you learn from the best, you learn from others, you apprentice, and you understand the mechanics. That foundation isn't taught in school. And it's unfortunate. And everyone turns their nose up. Well, you, you know, you're a sub. You should do what I tell you. That's great. Tell you what, I always offer, come to my shop, help us weld come to our shop, build the pieces. I'm fixing a country club right now because they didn't hire us to start, but board members happen to be clients of ours. And this beautiful, you know, golf club in, in uh, I won't say where because then everyone knows, but um, we're now coming back in and we're fixing all the problems from the design firm where canopies and details are bigger than the beams and the booths don't fit in on the furnishing side and, you know, all all of these other elements. And the only reason I think that we've achieved so much success today is because I listen to the architects and the designers and what they're trying to achieve. We listen to the homeowners and the hoteliers and the restaurateurs and what they're trying to achieve. Because the skill set is we've worked with and created and have the ability to build anything just because you have that ability doesn't mean it's going to be good but the baseline is i have this architectural background i went to school with a lot of these architects you know some who are listening today colleagues and and a lot of respect and some of them i don't because they don't listen and and it's really difficult because we as architects are trained in a manner which is counter to the building process today. But if you look historically, and, and I always reference this, uh, there's an article in Lux coming out that I have a great joke about, McKim, Mead, and White, Lewis, Kahn, Frank Lloyd Wright, Mies, Eileen Gray, and, uh, and, and Philip Johnson all in a room together. And, um, you know, they're basically pleading with the the conference and they're saying to everyone, look, listen to your trades. That's the only reason we're good. And if you look at McKim, Mead and White as a case study, while they may have drawn their own light fixtures, and it's very hard to reference who was building them. The fact of the matter is, is, is that the iron details and the artisans and the craftsmen who made those pieces were interactive on an early set with them with the you know design docs with the construction docs you can find the renderings so today you know my my hand renderings as i've inked for you know many of these people i've been fortunate and blessed um you know to to have this opportunity to help solve the problem because when the newer people are coming in the newer interns and young architects and designers working for these firms. They're not really given the guidance of listen to the subs. It's go, go follow the plan set and go follow our playbook as the architect. So what we do is we come in and as we educate, and then we have to re-educate and continue to educate. This is why it's so important to understand how you make something. It's not foam core and chipboard. It's not, you know, uh, some beam strap, you know, if Hilti manufactures a connector, you're only able to use the connectors that Hilti manufactures. We did a pavilion at the old Topanga colony uh, for an architect, and every detail, every connector that was rabbited in and designed, he designed with us, and every connection was a custom detail that we fabricated and patinaed and hand distressed. <clears throat> worked with their timbermen to make sure every little detail. Work together with that architect and no matter how many arguments we had with him and he had with us, it was a passion project. And that's how you build. That's how you design. That's how you create. But if you're just going to use the assemblage of parts and you're just going to order lights from, you know, some website that's mass producing them, you know, overseas or buy them from a store, that's not architecture. That's not even design. That's decorating and specification. This field has got to be better than that. That's why only 4% of architects are hired, or the the amount of architects that are hired or designers that are hired are 4%. That's why this, this, this profession is struggling because contractors and specifiers and other people take that and all they're doing is plugging in that's not what the built environment is. That's not what great architecture is about.
0: Where, where did you learn that? Where, did you learn that through experience? Or did you learn that from your days of driving around with Sid?
1: Partially, I learned it from Sid and Cleo, where they said, define that space, create that space. And because they were innovators, inventors, they were the early licensees but they actually owned the facilities too that made things as well. And, and there was a very different experience than today where designers and architects license their name as a brand and someone else makes it. Sometimes, shh, we're the guy who penned it. But, <laughs> you know, when when you have the ability to... Go with your passion, go with your conviction, right? The jobs happen. I got into furniture because Michael Berman, who's a friend and and dear colleague, uh, used to have these beautiful bronze tables. And my wife said, Michael, I want want the Shearborn table. And I get to tell the story because he lets me, by the way. And Michael said, I'm not gonna sell you the table. So what happens when that when 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 someone says that someone goes down another line, well I'm gonna manufacture, I'm gonna screw you. Michael says, No, no, no. The person who's making my tables now is not doing what I need. And and because we've made lights for Michael for years, you know, prior to that, he he knew what we could do. He says, So now, Gerald, you're gonna start manufacturing tables. All of a sudden, I'm in the furniture business. But the solution is the same exact way as I approach architecture, as I've approached pavilion building, as I've approached lighting, as I approach furniture, as I approach problem solving. It's the same. It's that architectural background. So my relationship, love it, hate it, enjoy it, embrace it with other architects. I am who I am. And our firm is built around that. And everyone, our project managers, our production people, our office staff, everyone who understands that this is what we're about, that rolls out into them talking to the architects, even if they don't have that architectural education. But when I when I meet someone, I get the privilege of saying, ha-ha, I was educated the same way. So now let's start. Same foundation. Let's go from there. If you don't like it, don't hire us. If you like that, we're going to give you the best solution, time, budget, and design. Budget time and design, or is it design first? What's first? How are we going to approach the problem, and what are the needs? It becomes part of the architecture. It becomes functional detail. It's no longer product. And the 1,500 products that uh, are going to be up on our site in a month I've about 450 we're adding into the1,000. That was from a year and a half worth of work, 450. We were very prolific the last day year and a half, two years. But <clears throat> the value of what we're showing is not necessarily look at this and buy this. It's this is what our capabilities are. Look at the beautiful pictures, look at the process in our lookbooks and how we fabricate, and it's, it's a dirty process. But the ink matters. And how we come up with that solution is part of that Wonderful, wonderful expression in architecture that we get to brag about,
0: Gerald. It sounds like your story is is an opportunity after opportunity after opportunity that that you've you've been presented an opportunity and you've pursued that opportunity, and and it and it appears to me that you don't look back. There's no regret. There's nothing. There's nothing behind me. It's all in front of me. That's what it sounds like. Is that, is that sort of the story of how you got to where you are today? It, it, it has to be.
1: The look back is understand the failures because we've had them. And as an entrepreneur, if you fail and you don't try again, you're no longer an entrepreneur. The continuation Of understanding what do I need to do from that failure and improve are the lessons I learned in EO, which is entrepreneurs organization. Used to be YEO when we were all young, now we're (laughs) not. Um, But the value of looking forward is understanding the history and what that foundation was, which is identical to architecture. If you understand what was and how those things were built, why they weren't built, the city planning to the landscape architecture, the engineering and all of those things, it was a mathematical problem that was solved. So if you look at your business model, and this is for any architect, it's the same way. You don't have to be the world's greatest lighting design manufacturer as we are, as we like to think we are. But if you solve your architectural firm's problems the same way and roll forward, the jobs are there, the opportunities are there. You can have a low end job, and that can be the greatest piece of architecture. And come back to that and ask me about the Frank Lloyd Wright story, and I will give you that answer as to why that is true and challenged. To the highest end, Your client's a billionaire. The solution, how you approach the problem is the same. The money's different. But you approach the problem and it should be identical. That datum, that platform that we use and drive, how is my firm going to solve the problem? So as an architect, if you solve the problem with that same conviction of understanding time budget design, The client has a need. Don't inflict your personal values on the client. Give them the solution because that's what you're trained to do. It can be traditional. It can be modern. It can be forward thinking. It could be replica architecture. But when you look at what the needs are, you can solve so many more problems and understand that, again, without the trades, without those people that are going to help you get that solution you never have anything but a bunch of lines on a piece of paper so now ask me about frank lloyd wright
0: tell us a story about frank lloyd wright
1: (laughs) i told you i'll just keep going if you don't time this thing out right
0: tell us and then and then and then we're going to wrap up with our final question perfect and this is a good one frank lloyd
1: wright in a lecture uh during the early years of Taliesin, said, every working man deserves to have a home designed by an architect, paraphrasing that. So this one uh, young couple had listened to this lecture. Certainly wasn't on a podcast. Maybe it was in the radio. Maybe they happened to be at Taliesin. I don't even know. I don't remember how, but I did get to read the diary and I did get Interact on this job site. So they wrote to Frank Lloyd Wright and said, we know you said this, we'd like you to design a home. Now at this time, I mean, you know, the guy's like developing falling water, he's at Tally S. like there's a lot going on. And he writes back and he says, I'm sorry, I don't really have the time. Here's a napkin sketch. My son's an architect in Beverly Hills, let him deal with it. So Lloyd Wright <clears throat> now has this new job. This house is 24 feet by 24 feet nominal length of a board lumber. And it was built in Northridge, California, right down the block from Hall Lumber. And <clears throat> Lloyd Wright had, you know, finished inking it out. It was called the Mat House based on the thatched roof. And everyone's like, Frank Lloyd Wright, though, like, look at no, no. I mean, you got to really understand Frank Lloyd Wright and all of the other great things he did. Beyond Prairie, beyond, you know, cinder blocks and building blocks. So, this was a thermally controlled house with a roof that pitched up into this triangle peak and sloped back down. It was a brick floor. Ah, sit in Cleo. Brick floor that extended beyond the square footage of the house onto the patio to bring in the thermal draw and also extend your eye to a little carport and a chicken coop. And the owners erected a tent and built the house from the inside out. And I'm reading the diary. It's like building a 20, 30, 40, 50,000 square foot house that we're working on today. And I'm like, this reads identical to the process. The building inspector came today and he wouldn't approve our electrical i mean it it's it's hilarious. It's a redwood sided uh ship lap side on the outside with um some other uh you know lap details on the inside. The peak also helped with with the heat evacuation and cooling. The center chimney built it out. their son was home from u c l a living. In the tent while they're building a house and um, it was quite a wonderful story. The end of the story is Lloyd Wright got pissed at the homeowners because they wouldn't put the thatched roof on, the mat roof. Why? Well, the wheat fields and all the the fields had a lot of rats in them at the time, and they didn't want rats in their roof. And they told him, "No, we don't want this." He got so upset as the diary read, he threw the plan set down and said, "That's it, I quit." And didn't collect the fifty of the rest of his uh, fifty dollars of the rest of his fee. And all those years later, the reason I was reading the diary is I was invited by the daughter-in-law who still owned the house and she was redoing it and they were getting their national register mark for it and they had never done the lighting in the house so with a few simple pen strokes i put it at the peak three different size white spheres off of these rods floating one on the inside and eric lloyd wright who many of us know When he came, I didn't know him until then, came to the dedication and he looks, he goes, wow, these lights were never there before. So what did I do? I introduced myself, told him a quick little story, if you believe it was quick. And he's like, this is how my father and grandfather would have done it. He nailed it.
0: That was a a, uh, a proud moment. Proud. So that's. That's how I've approached it,
1: with the same conviction.
0: So what, With all that history and all that knowledge, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? What's your thought on that? One thing. One thing. And this is can, my what, big thing. What can they do today and their their business will improve tomorrow? Not literally, literally tomorrow, the future.
1: Return every phone call, no matter how painful it is or how busy you are. Return every phone call that every tradesperson person calls you. And if they're selling, you can be polite and say, look, I'm, I get it. You don't have to sell me because too many people do today. But if there is the value of someone who really understands their craft and trade, and you have to ask those questions when you're on the phone. And many of us don't have time today in business. Many people turn that down. We answer the phone and we're always polite to everyone that that will call. And I've actually picked up some great vendors that way, right? Anyone who walks in the door. You don't have to give them the immediate attention, but you have to be responsive. And if you are, that answering of the phone is your opportunity to be educated by someone who most likely knows more than you. And if you respect their time, give them the courtesy back, hire them, refer them back to the contractor, whatever you may do, let them educate you. And when you do, you'll be a firm like McKim, Mead, and White. You'll be a firm that's a well-noted today firm that, I mean, our, our 6,400 people that I've met over the last 27 years in business. That's what our database is. Okay? You have that unique opportunity. But if you think you're going to tell your client how it's going to be just because you have lines on a page, that might be your business model, but that's not going to make you a Louis Kahn, a McKim and White, a Philip Johnson, a Frank Gary, Zaha Hadid, Eileen Gray, you know, Paul Williams, or any one of those other guys. They all listened, and that's what's going to make you great.
0: His name is Gerald Olesker. You can learn all about Gerald and the company ADGLighting.com. That's one of his many companies, but you can go there. ADGLighting.com. You can learn all about him. You can send him a message say, hey, I just heard your storytelling over at Entree Architect Podcast, and I appreciate it. So go reach out to him. Say say hello. If you're on, on in the Entree Architect community, at uh, Architects and Allies Facebook group, either one, he's in there too. Reach out to him and say thank you. Gerald, this has been very interesting. I love listening to you tell stories. It's the easiest interview I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank,
1: thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I love what you're doing by bringing in all of these important people in architecture and business to help educate the community. And I think that's why it was easy. had nothing to do with me talking. It has everything to do with the meshing of the minds. So thank you, Mark.
0: You're welcome, Gerald. Thank you. And I appreciate you coming on Entree Architect Podcast. You got it. You've been listening to episode 350. Yes, 350 episodes. And it's all because of you. Thank you very much for listening every week. For the last 350 episodes, and sharing each and every week the link to that episode. That's how we're growing. That's how we're continuing to grow. That's how we're we've gotten to 350 episodes. So if you like to access the show notes uh, and share this episode with a friend, the link is entrearchitect.com/episode350. Entrearchitect.com/episode350. Entree Architect is a proud member of the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media, curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-Media.com and check out Entree Architect Academy membership. That is something if you're an architect, you should be part of the Academy membership ready to edit business resources, live monthly training, and a supportive architect community all waiting for you right now at Entree Architect Academy membership. And don't forget our guest from last episode, Steve Stockman will be joining us on Wednesday, December 2nd, 2020 as our monthly expert trainer. He is the TV and video producer and he will be teaching a practical guide for telling your story through video as a small firm architect. If you remember, you'll have access to that Entrez Architect Expert training session. He'll provide a 30 to 40 minute live training presentation and we'll have live Q&A at the end. So if you liked last week's episode, don't miss that live training webinar. We do that every month on the first Wednesday of every month, we gather on Zoom and we have Entrez Architect Expert training session. Um, So if you're not yet a member, You need to join. Learn more and enroll now at entrearchitect.com slash join. That's entrearchitect.com slash join. And it's currently free for 30 days. You want to join us, do it now. You can join us at entrearchitect.com for free. Go to that that session, that that live webinar. If you like it, stick around. If you don't, you can cancel your membership and there's no cost. So we hope you to join us at entrearchitect.com slash join. Be well, my friends, be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening this week. Love, learn, and share what you know.
1: I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects
0: Calling all small firm architects, it's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architect's Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action.
1: There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic
0: calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be.
1: Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. (laughs) And so uh, for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more.
0: Gain insights to build a successful practice, subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.